Hello, and welcome back to the Formal Review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is Season 3, Episode 48, and I thank you all for joining me once again. This is the January History Episode, so Happy New Year to everyone listening. I know 2020 wasn't the best thing, but 2021 already looks better. So anyway, today's episode is the 11th in the monthly Look Back at History series. Each of these episodes, I, along with a special guest, look back at a very important moment in history. We usually will discuss everything that surrounds the importance of that event along with the film that is connected to that story. It may be the creation of comic book character or it may be a significant moment in a war or perhaps something completely different. Listeners will never know when in the month that this episode will drop, the topic, the film, or who will be joining me. The only way to find out is to follow me on social media to see when the newest episode is about to be released or subscribe to your favorite on your favorite podcast platform. Now this episode also is being released on the same day as the second in the award season series but that's just how it is with these historical dates. You have only one. So today on January 27th marks a very significant moment in history. On this date in 1972 at 11 o'clock a.m. Operation Gemstone was proposed by G. Gordon Liddy to then Attorney General of the United States John N. Mitchell and then White House Counsel John Dean and Jeb Magruber who was an ally and former aide to H.R. Haldeman as well as the temporary head of the committee to re-elect the president pending Mitchell's resignation as attorney general. So according to John Dean, this marked, quote, the opening scene of the worst political scandal of the 20th century and beginning of the end of the Nixon presidency, end quote. He, of course, was talking about Watergate. So that and the film, All the President's Men, are what we're going to be talking about on this episode. So stay tuned. I would like to welcome on my special guest, my dad. Now, he has been on a previous episode. He was actually the first participant in this history season in April of last year, where we talked about the Apollo missions and the film Apollo 13. And if you want to go back and check that out, that is season three, episode eight. Now, before we get into any discussion about this movie, just know this movie did come out about 50 years ago, so it's been out for a while. So we will be giving going into spoilers a little bit. So proceed with caution. Honestly, if you haven't seen it, go watch this now. You really have no reason not to. But if you don't care about that, keep listening. Also, you know, I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people skip over that part. <laughs> so I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve. A lot of you have talked to me offline, but I do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there. If everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that I could grow and make this more entertaining, feel free. And I'll look at them and I'll grow as such. So, Dad, welcome back. Thank you for having me on my second iteration. Of course, I always love talking about history with you specifically because you obviously lived through a lot of this. And so I thought it was definitely a good idea to bring you back on to talk about this specific event and also this specific movie. Now, without going into too much, which we will go into later, but this movie does have a lot of application to the current situation of things and the past president now. So as a slight warning, my dad and I are going to be talking about some 
political issues here so feel free to stop listening if you don't want to hear us talk about that but if you don't really care about that keep listening i will say the movie is really really good and also our conversation is extremely informational so i would say as well please stay on and listen but before we get into talking about that too much why don't you dad give your favorite politically based movies in general and i've got a few here um one is is the recent last two three years i've seen it once and it takes off on uh, all the president's men it's called the post and it stars meryl streep and tom hanks and it deals with the washington post and ben bradley who was the uh editor there and Catherine graham who was the owner of the post during the watergate period and she was one who was put on the line because what you didn't see in the all the president's men was things going on in the background because she went to some of the meetings with presidential people during that time. Then another one I've got is Bobby, which is more of a, it's a movie, but it's a documentary on Robert Kennedy when he was assassinated in 1968. And it goes into all of that. Then we got another one that's got some international context and it stars Meryl Streep, Iron Lady. It was done four or five years or more ago, dealing with Margaret Thatcher, who was prime minister of the UK during the time of Ronald Reagan. And then one recently that's been written up quite extensively, and you probably know this one, Daniel Day-Lewis starring in Lincoln. Mm -hmm. It's a Steven Spielberg and stuff. And so I guess those are the ones I would refer to that got, you know, direct political content. Mm -hmm. So for me, a lot of the actors are actually very similar. But one of my favorites is The Manchurian Candidate, not the original with Frank Sinatra, but the remake that they did with Meryl Streep and Denzel Washington. Yep. Then JFK, which is obviously the conspiracy theory of his assassination. Oh, yes. And all of that down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen um, that one. Yep. You got and it. then this one's a little bit more satire, but I still think it's it very political. And it's very relevant to today. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About and Love the Bomb. Yes, riding on the on the target in sight. Hey, what about Major Kong? Yes, I I really like that. Um, But when we focus more on to the press related type of movies, you already mentioned The Post and I like that movie. It was good. But my favorite ones are the one that we're talking about today, but also in a similar fashion, because obviously connected, is Frost Nixon. Yes, uh, yes. And then also this one's a little bit not politically press related. Zodiac. I know it's not your type of movie, but it's a thriller, obviously, but the Zodiac serial killer. For me, that's press related. Are there any other press related movies that you really well, like? I Well, I would key off of David Frost and Nixon. Beyond the movie, as you may recall, I went to, I think it was just me, in London, to an 
actual on-stage performance of that uh, movie and so forth. So yes, I would endorse that in terms of interviews with this. Most beyond that and press-related, I would tend to slide on the side of documentaries that have been done on perhaps, you know, Frontline or 60 Minutes or other places that really get into the role that the press could, should, or would play in the whole arena of political awareness and so forth. So I'm more of a, you know, when you get into substance there, you know, with my uh, focus on that, I would tend toward, you know, looking at documentaries rather than the traditional commercial movies. So to give a little bit more context and more information about the entire Operation Gemstone, on January 27, 1972, G. Gordon Liddy, who was the financial counsel for the committee to re-elect president and former aide to John Ehrlichman, presented this plan to the CRP's acting chairman, Jeb Stuart Magruder, Attorney General John Mitchell, and President Counsel John Dean that involved extensive illegal activities against the Democratic Party. Now, originally they thought that this plan was extremely unrealistic, and then two months later, they approved a reduced version of this plan. In May of 72, former FBI agent Alfred C. Baldwin III was assigned to wiretap and monitor the telephone conversations of the Democrat National Committee. Two phones inside the headquarters were said to be wiretapped. One was Robert Spencer Oliver's phone, who was at the time the executive director of the Association of State Democratic Chairman, and the other one was DNC Chairman Larry O'Brien. At some point, they realized that these listing devices needed repairs, so they plotted a quote-unquote second to take care of this situation. So sometime after midnight on June 17th, 1972, the Watergate complex security guard noticed that tape was covering some of the latches on the doors going into several offices, allowing them to close but not lock. He then called the police and they apprehended five men later identified as Virgil Gonzalez, Bernard Baker, James McCord, Eugenio Martinez, and Frank Sturgis. They were charged with attempted burglary and attempted interception of telephone phone and other communications. The following morning on June 18th, Liddy called Magruder in LA and informed him that, quote, four men arrested with McCord were Cuban freedom fighters whom Howard Hunt recruited, end quote. And the Nixon organization and the White House quickly went to work to cover it up and any evidence that might have damaged the president and then his re-election. Then on September 15, 1972, a ground jury indicted the five burglars as well as Hunt and Liddy for conspiracy, burglary and violation of federal wiretapping laws. They were tried by jury and pled guilty or were convicted on January 30th, 1973. So while all this is going down, you have these two reporters working for the Washington Post. One is named Bob Woodward and the other is Carl Bernstein. On October 10th, 1972, they reported that the FBI had determined that the Watergate break-in was part of a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of the Nixon re-election committee. Despite this new information, Nixon was re-elected on November 7th in one of the biggest landslides in American history. As such, the Post reporters continue to investigate and based on anonymous sources, they uncovered information suggest that the knowledge of the break-in and the cover-up all the way into the Justice Department, FBI, CIA, and White House. They interviewed Judy Hoback Miller, who was the bookkeeper for the re-election campaign, who revealed to them that there was a mishandling of funds and records were destroyed. Now, the main anonymous source, who they identified as Deep Throat, was later in 2005 identified as William Mark Feltz 
Sr., who was the director of the FBI during the period in the 1970s. He met with Woodward several times, telling him about Hunt's involvement with the Watergate break-in and that the White House staff regarded everything with Watergate extremely high. After the sentencing of the five burglars, the investigation then prompted the House in 1973 to convince an impeachment process against Nixon. The Supreme Court then ruled that Nixon had to release the Oval Office tapes to the government investigators, and they revealed that Nixon had conspired to cover up the activities that took place after the break-in and had attempted to use federal officers to deflect the investigation. The House Judiciary Committee then approved the articles of impeachment against Nixon for obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. After this, Nixon resigned on office on August 9th, 1974, and it is believed that if he had not done so, he would have been impeached by the House and then removed from office. Now, he is the only U.S. president to have resigned from office. On September 8th, 1974, Nixon's successor, Gerald Ford, pardoned him. In total, there were 69 people indicted and 48 people convicted. Many of them were top Nixon administration officials. So dad, as you were there when this was happening, if there were a few words that you would describe Watergate or what do you think of when somebody mentions to you Watergate? Well, for those of us that were there, it was our take, regardless of what's happened here in the last four years, it was our take at that time. That was broken government. That was the chief executive, the president of the United States saying in his own way, I am above the law. I don't need to be held accountable for what I do and I can do everything. Because what happened in Watergate was sort of the culmination of Richard Nixon's involvement in our political landscape. And he, yes, did Watergate, but there was a lot of other things he had investigations going on with people in the IRS and so forth. And so it was our take during that period of time of really what broken government would be. If you go beyond what happened uh, in the 60s, Kennedy was there. It was sort of a good period of time, growth until the Vietnam War took over and Nixon was, you know, the culmination of broken government. If you go back until the post-World War II period when the Joe mm -hmm. McCarthy, but this was broken government and institutions of government and people in government government taking it upon themselves to lie to the public. So this was the first major situation where that was at a crisis stage with Richard Nixon. So where were you when all of this started coming out? Well, this was the fall of 72, which was the election. And that was the first election that I voted in as a citizen of the United States. I know exactly where I voted over in St. Paul, Minnesota, close to where I lived at that time. I can probably, if you were here, I could take you to where I voted. I voted for George McGovern. Minnesota was the only state, I think, at that time that went completely for George McGovern in 1972. And so that was the whole fall that we went through the whole 60s when Robert Kennedy ran for office. Eugene McCarthy, who was another candidate for Minnesota, ran for office. Hubert Humphrey, just a, you know, one of the Democratic candidates who ended up running against Richard Nixon. So we were all, those of us that were on that side of the political spectrum, you know, that voted for George McGovern we're pretty disappointed. And then we begin to hear that some of what Nixon did, he broke in to the uh, Watergate complex and perhaps swayed some of the votes beyond what we would want to happen. So again, that was our sense of, gee, what is a democracy? Nixon supposedly won by a you know, large margin. We were defeated here in Minnesota, but then the Watergate stuff started to come out in the year or two. He ended up resigning in 74. So it took you know better part of two years to do this investigation 
nomination. But Mm -hmm. many of us were disappointed as that came out and said, gee, maybe our vote was disenfranchised, if you can call it that, because of what happened in Watergate. Mm -hmm. So at the same time in 1974, All the President's Men was a book released by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Now, they had always considered writing a book about this, but they didn't commit until Robert Redford expressed interest in purchasing the rights to this book. And the title of it, for those who don't know, is alluding to the nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Redford initially was asking about the Watergate breaking and then began reading about Woodward and Bernstein's stories in the Washington Post. Then he initially contacted them in November of 72. Then in 1974, he bought the rights to the book for $450,000 with the notion of adapting it into a film with the budget of $5 million. Alan J. Pakula was then hired to direct and initially Redford first selected Al Pacino to play Bernstein, but then he decided that Dustin Hoffman was a better fit for the role. So dad, before going into the movie, what are your favorite Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford films? I mean, I think I know what they are, but uh, <laughs> but I would just for anyone who's listening. Well, I, I give three and one most recently, this is eh, three, four years ago or whatever it is uh, with Dustin Hoffman, just because of, as you know, we have a, in our family a, a bias toward London, The Last Chance Harvey. I watch it probably eh, once a month now because of, you know, it's linked to London and um, you know, it's Dustin Hoffman and he's you know been around a long time. That's one for him. Then I go back to, many of us know the song The Way We Were. That was uh, Robert Redford and uh, Barbara Streisand and uh, the movie there. And then there was one with Jane Fonda, Barefoot in the Park. Again, New York City. But, and it was like late 60s, early 70s and so forth when Robert Redford was there. And so those are three. I could probably go down a list of, you know, eight or 10 or more that they're there. There's one that Robert Redford made about skiing, uh, you know, on the West Coast and so forth. So, but I'll go with those for now. Well, I meant three for each actor. Oh, geez. Well, well, I didn't do that research, so you'll have to name some. I mean, yeah. that's fine. So, at least with me, my favorite Hoffman roles, I guess, are Rain Man. That's one yeah. of his better performances. Midnight Cowboy, yeah. controversial movie, but still good. Yeah, New York uh, City again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then this one is kind of a not so serious one, but Hook. Yes. Yeah. 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 Peter Peter Pan. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And then Red Redford. It's I mean, I think you know this, but it's the sting. Yeah. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's the the next one. And then Great Gatsby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. There are some other ones that I like with him in it, but I think those are most memorable. Yeah. So All the President's Men is a 1976 political biographical drama film about the Watergate scandal based on the book, which brought down the presidency of Richard Nixon. As we already talked about, it was directed by Alan J. Bakula with the screenplay by William Gidman, and it obviously stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, respectively. When it was originally released, it grossed seven mil- about $7 million for its first week, placing it number one at the box office and eventually grossed $70.6 million. 
first thing we can just go quickly into is what did you like about the film? Well, what I liked about All the President's Men is just its sense of reflecting in their activities, the real persistence and determination that it takes to unearth these kinds of public efforts that start out in a secrecy mode. I mean, it depicted these, you know, they call them in the media world, oh, I-team reports and those kind of things. But what it really takes to unend this, that they had to go through with the focus on Deep Throat, they had to face lots of opposition from their own editors within the Washington Post and then the broader community. When you call somebody on the phone and you say, I'm this and that, and they hang up on you or they don't want to talk to you or they don't respond to your inquiry. But the dogged determination that it takes to unearth this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took them, as I said, from the time it happened in 72 until 74 August, a better part of two years off and on to do all this. And they were a lot of opposition in your face. So that sense of dogged determination and persistence and perseverance to recognize I know there's something there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That goes into a lot of little bits of the movie because it's really about these two guys essentially just keeping on investigating. There's too many red flags to not stop. They can't stop because there's just so many dots that they have to connect trying to find what happened that night and I think like that's really fully exemplified in the one shot where they're in I think in the Library of Congress and it just zoom out but upwards and it's yeah. kind of just showing how by themselves they were in this like right. everyone was essentially telling them all right this isn't really worth going into there's other things to be done but there's just so much there's so many uh, roadblocks like you said that basically tell them okay we don't want to talk and obviously in a day and age that's where information isn't just on the tip of your fingers they are looking these names up in phone books obviously that's a lost thing that we don't really use anymore um, the internet's there. Finding how people are connected is obviously so much more difficult back then. And it's really, I guess, showing how important how the freedom of the press amendment right is, because you're right when it comes to Nixon, obviously I wasn't around then, but somebody saying one thing, but then doing another behind closed doors and basically taking advantage of the people in that way. And no one's really holding him accountable for that. And because if you have enough people on your side, you can hide whatever you want. But no one really should do that because that obviously can lead to dictatorship. And I think that's one of the things, at least when it comes to things that I didn't really like about the movie, and this is something really minuscule. It is a very slow movie. I don't think that that's really done in a really negative way. It's just the style of it because it's trying to be historically accurate. It's known as being one of the most historically accurate movies ever made. And you kind of see that because it's not something that in a lot of these investigative cop shows within an hour they solve a crime that's usually not how it goes it usually takes months and there is a lot of steps that they have to go and you start from the beginning and step by step by step by step and your work going along with the two characters which is a little bit different from what you were talking about earlier with the post i think the post is a little bit more dramatic in some ways it's meant to be here's a scene of a really good actor acting well instead of this though they're acting obviously well they're not really trying to win an award for best acting. Here's a story. We're just going to present it in an accurate way. What this is, yes, it's a movie. Yes, it's entertainment. But yet the underlying focus is on the role of government mm-hmm. and accuracy in government and everything else. So there's only so 
much you can do to entertain people. Yes, you had, you know, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, but it's the dogged determination. I don't mean to repeat that, but you can't, you only can go so far in entertaining people. Then you got to look at, you know, sort of what documentaries do. It's the real issue they're trying to follow. And the other thing I would ask, and just in the context of, you know, what I like, just because, and this is more of a personal where I sit in the state of Minnesota, some of the people in that movie, I didn't know personally, but like Ken Dahlberg that they had in the movie that was financing, he was right here in Minnesota. He was the owner of a hearing aid company and I could go right by where it was. And so they had this stuff and creep and some of the people had a Minnesota context because there was, you know, this was Hubert Humphrey, right? That they were running against. And so, so to sit there and listen and then little things like he calls somebody on a phone and he says, what I do is proper. Oh, I, I understand. I've just been through a terrible ordeal. My neighbor's wife has been kidnapped. I can tell you who he was talking about. It was a, a financier here whose wife got kidnapped and taken to Duluth. So little things in there that just because who I am and where I've been mm-hmm. just resonate. You know, you go, wow. So yeah, that goes into the next question is uh, to your memory, even watching the movie today, how accurate was it to your memory? I think it's accurate in terms of depicting the major players that were there, you know, whether you went to say, okay, Deep Throat and, and all of the players they had to contact. And as they went through the names with Jeb Magruder and they tackled what that is and so forth. And then eventually, I think the test of the accuracy there and, and as what they went through is, you know, they had a major impact on the way people thought. Because it's not entertainment. You could use it to some degree. If somebody don't want to read the book, you could use it in a political science course or a communication course. You could go to major communication communication schools or journalism schools and I would hope they would you know want to play this and have a discussion similar to what you and I are having with right you're in a journalism school how do you get more people to want to do both Woodward and Bernstein are around today I've got a book I'm still on my reading king here that your mother got me for five dollars that's written by Bob Woodward on rage how do you get more people to be willing to do what Woodward and Bernstein and to investigate what we just went through not a lot of the media wanted to look into Trump. Nah, just let him go. I think that accuracy is here. You could use this as a tool in a journalism school to teach people how to do good investigative reporting. Yeah, that came really when both Redford and Hoffman did a lot of homework regarding it. They spent months working at the Washington Post and basically seeing how it was going down at the time. Because, I mean, this movie came out pretty much right around the same time. They recreated a replica of the Washington Post news office. So not a lot of time had passed and trying to recreate the real life Washington Post and everything that they went through in real life into this movie. And like you said, this movie could be shown in schools for a representation of what it is like to be an investigative report. Because like I said already, today we have a lot easier way to investigate things because of the internet. So this movie could be a teaching school of how to investigate something even if you don't physically look through phone books anymore it still shows that work ethic is something that has to be continued on and if it's something obviously with how the internet is today i mean it's easy to find stuff out but you still have to look into it look for that source yeah as the movie says follow the money 
find those connections. They may not be obvious, or you may think that they're obvious and they're not. Um, yeah. And just making sure that like there's a primary source and not just relying on the first thing that you see. Where is the data? Follow the data. Yeah. Follow the money, follow the data. The research and stuff is there. It's about going and looking. That <coughs> message of working hard, especially in the journalism world, a really good example of that. And so, I mean, this movie, just going into what happened post it got released, it was nominated for many awards across the board, including best art direction, direction itself, editing, picture, yeah. adapted screenplay, sound, and then best supporting actors for Jason Robards and Jane Alexander. Yeah. And decades later, Rotten Tomatoes looked at reviews and it has a 94% certified fresh rating based on 64 critics with an average score of 9.07 out of 10. And based on about 50,000 user ratings, it has a 92% audience score. The consensus reads, quote, a taut, solidly acted, pioneer to the benefits of free press and the dangers of unchecked power made all the more effective by its origins in real life events, end quote. On Metacritic, it has a score of 84 out of 100 based on 13 critic reviews indicating universal acclaim. Then it ended up winning art direction, adapted screenplay, sound, and then supporting male actor. But it lost best picture to Rocky. And interestingly, in 2015, the Hollywood Reporter polled hundreds of Academy members, asking them to re-vote on past controversial decisions. Academy members indicated that given a second chance, they would have awarded this Oscar up for best picture to all the president's men instead of Rocky. And then in 2007, it was added to the AFI's 100 Years 100 movies list at number 77. AFI also named it number 34 on its Americans most inspired movies list and then number 57 at the top 100 thrilling movies. The characters of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein share the rank of number 27 on AFI's 100 years 100 heroes and villains list as obviously heroes. Now watching this today dad do you think that this movie holds up? I think it does. Yeah I would especially say because you were reflecting on the realism of the where they had the setting, whether it be, you know, in the courtroom there at the beginning when he went up behind the guy and, you know, the other lawyer that was there, how they replicated that courtroom setting, whether they went to a real one. Um, and then you go and where they were walking and you can see either the, uh, the heightened view or, you know, the Capitol with what happened here just in the last two weeks in Washington, right? That whole, the Capitol building is still there. And you get this sense of what it means to be in the context of Washington, D.C., even that before, and how that plays on what you are, that Washington is more than just buildings. It's, you know, the actual center of democracy, and that's what this was. And they were, at that time, saving democracy. Because if you didn't get it, Nixon would have been there, and who knows what would have happened. But, you know, an example of, just like we're facing today with, you know, Trump's remaining impeachment. What are you going to do? Nixon ended up resigning, but a lot of that was as a result of this effort. If they weren't continuing, and that gets back to where you asked earlier, two people can have an impact. It's not hundreds and thousands. These two people were so dedicated that they ended up getting a resignation of a president. Two people. Yes, they had help from you know the organization, but it was their determination that had impact. So you can go back to people who have impact on the world. Martin Luther changed religion in the Europe. I mean, one or two people. Strange as that might seem, we had two people here who changed the world. Obviously, it's very important. We've already talked about it, but it's showing these obviously historic moments, like you mentioned, in American history, but also global history, um, both in politics and journalism. And I think it's why journalism is an important 
part of democracy because you do have people who are going to fact check you to use a today term yeah um, it's one of those things that even today like i saw they were doing it toward biden how he didn't say 100 percent of something or he flubbed it a little bit to make it a little bit more dramatic but it's one of those things that i mean that is politics unfortunately but you still need somebody who's willing to fact check and being able no matter honestly what side of the political spectrum you fall on that right. still matters this especially because this is now what 50 years later almost yeah that's especially for any one of the next generation i mean it shouldn't stop being important people tend to say if you go back to your high school history or even grade school history three branches of government the executive branch the legislative branch and the judicial branch but there's this fourth call it the fourth estate call it the fourth branch of government of journalism and the role of the media we have lost that sense of the role they play you look at major media today you know it as well as i do the criteria for is how do you look now you looked at you know redford you could say but bernstein was an even i mean he had the long hair he wasn't the traditional you know anchor person that you see on major media stations today he was there because he's willing to go and do it and get the tough stuff how he looked it wasn't there so that whole sense of the role the media plays in sustaining democracy i mean you definitely touched on it when it comes to the importance of this it really shows how really two people can be so important for an overall honestly this goes into the whole idea of why the first amendment is important because for those who don't know the, this amendment states that congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech in addition to other freedoms such as the religion and press and the right to assemble so my worry here is that you see a lot of people that are either confused or underinformed about what the first amendment is and you see people arguing about trump's ban from twitter or not publishing josh howley and that this constitutes first amendment violation and that's not violating the first amendment because for one twitter and these book companies are private companies they aren't the government the first amendment was designed to prevent congress or the states from blocking people's freedom to express themselves and as said of today the government has not done that in fact you could really state that it actually protects the right of a company such as twitter to decide for itself what content to allow and the government can't push a private company to publish something if it doesn't want to publish and twitter is a platform that can regulate all of its contents as it wishes in accordance obviously with its terms of service that every user agrees to when they sign up and there are to my knowledge at least no current laws that restrict the ability of platforms to regulate their content and and the basis because of that is because of what the first amendment states and so if you go back and look at what the First Amendment and then there's this debate on what is protected as free speech and there has been multiple cases of this but one of the most recent ones Medal versus Tam in 2017 reaffirmed that there is effectively no hate speech exception to the free rights protected by the First Amendment and thus the US government cannot discriminate against speech on basis of the speaker's viewpoint as long as it doesn't lead to incitement of imminent violence even though I just obviously disagree with it, you can say that you dislike somebody because of their race and that you think that you're superior to them in a way. You can think that all you want. You're allowed to say that all you want. Now, if you try to incite an action on them, that's where it's a little bit different. So for speech to lose First Amendment protection, it must be directed at a specific person or 
group and it must be a direct call to commit immediate lawless action. And this is what you get for dating a lawyer and interacting with a lot of lawyer friends. So even though I'm not a lawyer, a lot of it is osmosed by me. You look back at certain cases. So in 69, there was a US Supreme Court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio. They ruled that the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a state to forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. And then in 1973, in Hess versus Indiana, the Supreme Court clarified what constitutes imminent lawless action. So speech can't be directed to any group or group of persons that the speaker was advocating any action. And so the reason I bring this up, because this is all important to this movie. So I want to know what you think, Dad. I've got it right here. I've had it since 2017. This is my hand version of the Constitution right here. A little buck, here it is. To me, what this is, you read it. Yes, you've got the First Amendment in here prohibiting free speech, but you got to interpret what's there with the First Amendment, not just in the context of what's there. It's the entire Constitution, right? Because what we had here is free speech, yes, but to the point of calling for insurrection, calling for takeover of the government, calling for pulling out arms and everything. So that whole sense of reading the entire Constitution, not just, okay, I'm going to be an isolate simply on a one. And then you've got all of the other aspects of it. And that's one side. The other is if you're on the editorial board or the board of the New York Times and somebody submits a letter that says, I want to take over the government. I want to go shoot up the capitals and all of this stuff that you find on the internet. The New York Times most likely will say, gee, I'm not going to print that. Now you've got, you got the equivalent of that, which is electronic, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or whatever the guy's name is at Twitter, they get all the people coming in at citing insurrection, there's no guidance to that. I mean, everything has boundaries. It's called balance. You know, let's like you or me, that somebody yells and screams at us, but if they threaten to kill me, then I can go to the police and have them arrested or whatever. So it's a matter of where you draw the boundaries. And I think we've exceeded that in a lot of our activities in the last four years, at least, if not before. Yeah. You go back history and look at, you know, in the 30s and this guy with a mustache in Germany by the name of Adolf Hitler. I don't mean to over that, but that's what he did. He began making these pronouncements and people started listening and they said, like in Trump, we want to make America great. Go make America great by doing this and going up the Capitol and get in there. And so if it gets to the point where your words result in some kind of act, destructive activity, uh, then you got to be held accountable for that. Right. And, yep. uh, and again, and to wrap it around back to the movie, I mean, that basically what this movie was doing was showing yep. that accountability. All right. So before we get into the final questions, is there <clears> anything <throat> else that you want to close? Because I think we both really like this film and we both said why. Is there anything else you want to say about it? You can take the characters and apply it today. And it has that sustainability and relevance, you know, 50 years later. Mm -hmm. um, then it's up to society to learn from history. This is a definite example of of 
what you can learn from history. So I think it's an opportunity to continue to learn if we're willing to look at history in that context. Yeah. What's the phrase? Those who don't look back at history are damned to repeat it. Yeah, I could give you quotes from people in Europe. You've been there. You've visited various um, places. And yes, why have another war? Why have another breakdown of government? Because what we went through in Watergate was, okay, this is the pinnacle. We've now saved it. And these words that come out after something happens, how can we prevent this from happening again? Mm-hmm. You don't learn from history, you repeat it. And so I think this is out there when people say, well, gee, I'm not sure. Why is freedom of the press important? Pull this out. Look at it. Well said. So this is your first time tuning in. What I always do with a guest is have a set of questions. And this is based on the TV show Inside of the Actor Studios. Lipton took his inspiration from the French book talk show host Bernard Pivot, who had a similar questionnaire at the end of every episode on his show of apostrophes. However, it was not invented by Pivot. It was invented by Marcel Proust. I was a big fan of Lipton's Inside the Actor Studio, so to keep his memory alive, I thought I'd have a list similar to his at the end of each episode whenever I have a guest on. Now, I'm not going to keep the exact questionnaire that James Lipton has done. I'm just like he did not keep the exact same questions that Pivot did, but I do want everyone to see where my guest heads at when it comes to movies. So this will be a little bit of fun. So let's get started. Now, Dad, because you have been on the show before, I do have a set of different questions from the last one. Again, listeners, if you want to hear his answers to the first set of questions, go check out season three, episode eight. So the first question is, what is your favorite movie from 2020? Or since you don't go to theater that often, what is your favorite movie that you've rewatched? Ah, <laughs> uh, that I saw 2020. Probably uh, I watch um, Letters to Julia. What saddened you the most about 2020? Well, I guess, I mean, not that I don't go that often, but, but for, for people that like to go out and do that, uh, the saddened me the most is uh, you can't do it, but the whole arena of performing arts, whether it be movies, whether it be musicals, whether it be, you know, going to a symphony, I think I can, you know, empathize more with the performer. What can they do? I mean, movies have been sort of shut down. I just read something recently that some are going to release, they were going to release this year in a month or something, and they're going to wait till April when COVID gets along. So from an artist standpoint, they have to find other avenues to do it. And so their livelihood has been constrained. They had to get funding and some of them are on the street. So then what would you say film-wise is the best thing about 2020, if anything? Well, I guess that just tells you don't, don't look necessarily for new movies. Go back and learn from history. You tend to, if you want to say, I want to go to a next movie, next movie. I mean, you and I, you know, collect some of these things but go back and continue to research because I have movies I have books as you know that you can learn from I just this week got another book here it's called The Greatest Generation by a guy named Tom Brokaw who used to be in the media that's whole sense of whether if you're going to focus on movies find those that you really like and go back and see what I can learn from what is your favorite curse word uh Jeez. I spent a lot of time saying, you know, don't choose to curse, but I say, oh, shit, a few times or something. Oh, that's fine. What movie-related profession would you not want to do? Probably be a stuntman. That's a toughie, and they get injured, and it's like playing professional football in a way, the risk you take in doing some of it. Favorite movie score of all time? Probably in terms of another movie I watch, which is Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. So it's the one going along with that, or maybe Rocky's theme. 
best Professor X actor? Patrick Stewart. What is your favorite movie world? Whether it's Galaxy Far, Far Away. Probably one that I remember is Dr. Zhivago with the big scenes and David Lean did that, all of that. And then, because I had some enamored with the woman in there who played the part and, you know, it was Omar Sharif and just that big thing. I think that would stand up. Now, do you take the blue pill where the story ends? You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. Or do you take the red pill where you stay in Wonderland and you see how deep the rabbit hole goes? I would say I'm probably the red pill because I'm inquisitive. I want to find out the answers to questions. I don't want to, you know, just accept what someone else says. So I would want to at least go down there and find out if it, the premise is, you know, my life is artificial and not go. I want to find out behind it because I've spent, you know, my life. Let me find the root cause of what's been proposed. So that ends this. So thanks again, Dad, for coming on. I appreciate it. This was a good conversation. I'm excited to put this episode out. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful opportunity to share ideas. And let's do it again soon. Thanks, Dad, again. And I'll talk to you soon. Talk okay, you soon. bye. Now, what did you think of the movie? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. Former Review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. I post many things, including trailer reactions, so go check those out. The handle is all the same. It's at the Formal Review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to the Formal Review. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're now on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. Honestly, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, we have our content there. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so please leave a review and what you want to hear because I really do this for you all. I see the numbers and I really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly, that's what it's all about. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, thank you again. And if you want to help support on a financial basis, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast. And honestly, any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, wear your mask, wash your hands, stay safe and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Formal Review. Cheers.